Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Jerry Mander, founder and director of the International Forum on Globalization. Jerry Mander, welcome to the New School. Thank you. It's great to do something in my neighborhood. Right. Jerry, I've had an opportunity over the last week or so to review your books, your uh, website postings, uh, the YouTubes that are out there uh, on your work and so forth. Uh, you are an author and social critic. You are a founder and co-director of the International Forum on Globalization. And I'm not clear whether you either still are or were program director for the Mega Technology and Globalization program of the Foundation for Deep Ecology. Is that an ongoing appointment or not? No, I, I stopped that about two years ago. Okay. You're the author of uh, a whole set of really iconic and important books. Um, uh, four Arguments for the uh, Elimination of tele Television in 1977. Was it abolition or elimination? Elimination. Elimination, right. Uh, in the Absence of the Sacred in 1991, The Case Against the Global Economy and for a Turn Toward the Local with the uh, founder of The Ecologist, Edward Goldsmith, Paradigm Wars, Indigenous Peoples' Resistance to Globalization with Victoria Tauli uh, Corpus, am Corpus, I Corpus right. in 2006, and Alternatives to Economic Globalization with John Cavana in 2004. Uh, many people probably know about at least some of those books. What people probably don't know, and I was surprised to see, is that you're also the co-author of the great international paper airplane book. And uh, so I was, I was wondering if you'd mentioned that. <laughs> I'm pleased to learn about that. Um, That's a bestseller. Is it a bestseller? It's a million seller. Yeah. And, uh, but there's a terrible story connected to that. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you. You want to hear it right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. Let's hear that. Which is that uh, that was when I was still in the advertising business. Yeah. And uh, one of our accounts was the um, Scientific American magazine. Mm -hmm. This was commercial advertising. This is way back in the early 60s. And um, they were losing revenue. They weren't getting advertising in the magazine for their... Um, for their, uh, from air airlines, and they wanted to have more a advertising for airlines. So they hired us to try to get the more advertising for airlines. We said, well, obviously, you should do a paper airplane competition, which, uh, because paper airplane design, because, because modern SST design, which was then just coming out, is obviously derivative of paper airplane design. So obviously, there are paper airplane designers in the world who will chart the future course of aeronautics. And so we did this thing. It was a tremendous sensation. And uh, we, we had a final fly-off in the New York Hall of Science with uh, 11,000 entries to this thing. But anyway, um, when we closed the agency, because I then went into nonprofit advertising, um, I closed down the commercial agency, we had to sell all our assets. And we had a really bad lawyer. I won't say who he is, but he said, you've got to sell all your assets. I said, I want to keep the paper airplane book for my own. He said, no, 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 you've got to sell it. So we sold it for $10,000 no, $10, to Don Aitken. Does, do anyone know who Don Aitken is? He's a big activist. He's a teacher at uh, San Jose State. And Don Aitken's made $30,000 a year 
every year since then on the royalties for the paper airplane <laughs> book. <laughs> so, but anyway, I'm very proud of that book. That's my only million seller, even though I don't get anything out of it. It's a wonderful story. In reviewing your book, your books and, and everything else, what really struck me is the depth and breadth and coherence of the radical critique of globalization that you have evolved since you ended your career in, uh, in advertising, in, uh, in corporate advertising. It's really a quite unique combination. There are a lot of critiques of globalization out there, but what strikes me as unique about yours is, first of all, how deeply from inside the advertising industry you came and how strong your understanding of those issues are. And secondly, you brought that advertising media sensibility to crystallizing the issues. And thirdly, you were willing to be a social entrepreneur. You didn't just write about this stuff, but you uh, worked through the Foundation for Deep Ecology, the International Forum on Globalization, Public Media Center, and other ventures to really change the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a particularly powerful combination of things. So just with that brief introduction, I, I asked you to start off with just a kind of a capsule summary of your argument that uh, globalization may be coming to an end. Well, did anybody see the New York Times a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday? We get the Sunday Times here in Bolinas. Um, but it had a page one story about how globalization was now suffering because of the global ecological crisis, particularly the shortage of oil and the increased costs of energy and so on. Well, we've been saying that for a couple of years, that, that globalization was going to have a very hard time surviving the near future because we've been predicting from our work on what we call the uh, global triple crisis. The global triple crisis is... I mean, a lot of people are talking about climate change now, but about two years ago, we started talking about a combination of things. Climate change on the one hand, peak oil, which is the beginning of the decline of the energy supplies of oil in the world, oil and gas and fossil fuels, including coal, uh, in the world, um, and how that was going to change the entire equation of, of everything, all economic activity in the world because the end of cheap energy would mean that most of the understandings about how industrial society uh, is going to continue to operate were off the table, because without cheap energy um, and cheap resources in general, um, industrial society really can't operate at anything like it's, any part of it can't operate in the way that um, it currently operates. And the third leg of the triple crisis was um, global depletion of resources. That is to say, we're not only, oil is not only in sharp decline and therefore increasing, but very many other absolutely crucial resources are also running out. They are uh, fresh water, for example, which is probably gonna be a bigger crisis sooner and cause more wars than the oil situation. Uh, the, the water crisis is getting to be really profound and there's no substitute for it either. Uh, water, uh, fossil fuels, um, arable soil in, in great decline right now. 
fish in the oceans, coral reefs, forests, uh, a lot of key minerals like phosphorus and zinc and uh, um, many others that are not coming to my mind. Um, coltan, the cell, keeps all our cell phones going. Um, all of these things are drastically running out at the same time as oil is running out, and the same time as we're having climate change. We have, we're having a, a catastrophic global situation unlike any that's ever happened, and we're only focusing on a part of it. The overall uh, statement is that without cheap energy and without um, inexpensive, accessible resources, which are now, we can see the end of the limits, we can see the limits of the Earth right now. We're, we're looking at the limits of the earth. And the, the only way globalization continues, and the only way um, capitalism continues, um, and the only way is through, they're, they're based on economic growth. If you don't have rapid economic growth, steady economic growth, year after year economic growth, the systems are based on that. Now, during the, during the last uh, half of the 1900s, we had a very rich resource abundance everywhere in the world, and the resources were cheap and plentiful. If you could get at them, you could, you could really exploit them and make a lot of money from processing them, shipping them around, and so on. That's over now. That's all over. And the cheap available resources are over. And what we're seeing now, the beginnings of the kind of economic crisis we now are looking at where, you know, everybody's, it's a very fragile system. Everybody's worrying because the rate of growth over the last two years has gone down from one and a half percent to a half percent. And maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's down flat now, or maybe it's going to negative. But that little bit of a decline in growth has got everybody completely freaked out. It's got the banks freaked out, it's got home mortgages falling apart, people losing their savings, um, you know, uh, banks unable to fulfill their commitments, uh, corporations unable to sustain their um, uh, stock prices. It's the basis of everything. Economic growth is the basis of everything. And economic growth, which is the lifeblood of all of these processes, is not going to continue at the, at, the, at the rate that it needs to continue if we're going to maintain an industrial society at its present level. So we've been saying this for quite a while. We said it, Bing was at our, some of you may have been, some other people may have been at our teaching. Bing recorded the whole thing in uh, uh, last year about this time in New York, in Washington, where we laid all this out and we said that the growth rate is not going to sustain itself and therefore globalization is seriously threatened and capitalism is seriously threatened, and the industrial economy is seriously threatened, and, and we don't see how it's going to recover. I mean, I, don't, I, I think we're looking at the end, the, or the beginnings of the end, because, you know, this thing can go on for quite a while before. But we're going to look at a series of economic emergencies that are not going to get better. And uh, so that's the bad news, but that's the good news, too, because that system, as we all in this room, I'm sure, share the view, is um, un an unsustainable system, not only economically, but uh, ecologically, and we're seeing the crisis from that now. And um, so it's very, very important that we uh, shift directions and um, uh, come to grips with that and um, look at the causes of it. 
and uh, reverse, reverse direction and start going towards sustainability. Now, you've written about the process of what you call, many people call relocalization mm -hmm. as a key aspect of uh, an alternative. Uh, and you've also uh, written uh, very eloquently uh, in uh, your book, In the Absence of the Sacred, which took, I think, 13 years to write, uh, about the whole indigenous consciousness and sensibility and values as a guide to some of the processes of relocalization that you're that you uh, uh, see coming forward. Uh, you've also talked about the dangers, the dangers of fascism and relocalization and other phenomena like that. Uh, as you watch what you believe to be uh, the end of globalization, how do you see this phenomenon of relocalization actually playing out? What, what will it actually look like? Well, it plays out with, with difficulty because uh, there are so many elements of the system now that are going to be very difficult to transition away from peacefully. That's the real fear about um, fascism coming along. You know, uh, it, many of you probably have read Richard Heinberg, I know Bing has, and many of you also have read Richard Heinberg, I know. He speaks of the danger of moving from this phase to another phase that he calls last man standing, which is the old, you know, it's the science fiction post-apocalyptic vision of everybody fighting for the remaining resources and building militaries to protect their resources and competing globally for that. And we see the beginnings of that already, of course, when all these uh, oil wars that are developing, soon there'll be water wars. And, uh, and, and countries are going to start hunkering down in terms of uh, making sure they have enough resources for themselves and and when it really comes down to it, it'll probably be for the ruling classes in each one of these countries, and then you get the potential for terrible turns, turns of events. Now, we don't want that. Nobody wants that. Um, um, but how, how we avoid that is, is with great uncertainty, I'm afraid. You know, I'm not sure. I, I, it's clear what direction we want to go in, but there's tremendous landmines uh, from here to there. And uh, we have too many people on the planet. We have an industrial system, which is the basis of all delivery of food and, and uh, materials. We have um, a completely, we have an entrenched capitalist um, class, which is not gonna wanna give up its prerogatives. We have entrenched militaries. We have entrenched political systems. None of them are gonna wanna go easily. So I think all we can do is try to do what we can do, uh, which is uh, there are a few things that are uh, very, very, very clear and, and many things we can start doing now and create models and create practices that, will, that can reverse things. You know, I pulled out this one sheet when you were talking because you were talking about alternatives and the first thing I noted was uh, what Teddy Goldsmith said, which was um, we have to do everything exactly the opposite of the way we've been doing them until now. And that's a pretty good guidepost. However we're doing them now, just do it the other way. Instead of all goals starting with growth, our side wants a steady state system that stays well within the carrying capacities of the Earth. And we need to figure that out, what that is. Only enough energy to reach that level, only so much material throughput to sustain that level. Now what that means, for example, in terms of energy is, all this talk right now is about alternative energies to substitute for 
fossil fuel. That's the way out of that thing. We've got to find alternative energies to substitute for fossil fuels. So we have to have wind and solar and biofuels and, and uh, hydro and et cetera. And, I, and the way people are talking about it is we need to find a way to have them be the substitute for fossil fuels. But there is no substitute for fossil fuels. The fact of the matter is, if you go into the studies about it, you find that fossil fuels function at a level of efficiency in terms of energy delivery that cannot be matched by wind or solar or any combination of this. So no matter how you do it, if we're going to talk about sustainable, sustainable energy systems, it means powering down. That's the title of one of Heinberg's books. You have to power down. It has to function at a much lower, society's going to have to function at a much lower level of energy use, a much lower level of material throughput, and we're going to have to figure out how to get along with that with a much lower level. We have to identify the carrying capacity of the earth, which people that I talk to say is more or less about 50% of what the current material throughput and energy uh, use is. And if it's 50% of the current level, then you have to function way below that you know, in order to have any kind of margin. So let's say it's 30% you have to seek. Well, if it's 30%, what about all the poor countries of the world? How, how are they going to... They're, they're already function below that level. So how do they get up to um, an equity level? So that involves a lot of concepts of transferring wealth from the countries that have piled it up at the other country's expense and setting up equity systems that, that will work. But um, that's the big picture work. If, instead of globalization, we believe in localization. Um, instead of growth economics, we believe in steady state economics. That is to say, well, most of you know what steady state economics it means. It means no growth economics. You, you live on the capital and the, uh, you, you live on what, what, of what your community can provide in terms of land and resources and, and you don't try to create surplus out of it. You don't try to expand. Instead of uh, measurements like gross domestic product, you, you, we have to set standards of maximum production. In other words, we have to think in terms of maximizing, making rules about maximum production at, at, in everything, in everything, in material, in material goods, in energy goods, in overall society use. Instead of hyper-consumerism, which we all know is a disaster, it's the prime value of the system right now, we have to favor a level of um, sufficiency. Sufficiency is the term that has to be used. And have, how many of you have seen those studies on happiness that are around a lot lately? You know, they're very, very interesting. And they, and they, they basically say that people at a level of sufficiency, which means they've got enough clothes, they have enough food, the kids are okay, they're, they're, they're in a community, there's health provided, they function, they're not deprived. At that level, people are happy. Below that level, they're not happy. Above that level, if it's like 10% more than that level, they're happier. But, if you, but as you get to the higher levels where there's really surplus consumption and sur surplus material use and so on, the level of happiness declines per person. And at a certain point, it actually goes down. Uh, the rate of increased declines, and then at a certain level, it goes down. So 
we need to talk about that and figure out levels of sufficiency and then aim economies at that rather than at the, at the hyper-consumption levels that we're aimed at now. And obviously, on the localization domain, self-sufficient communities are, we're going to have to have self-sufficient communities because we, we're not going to be able to depend upon shipment of stuff. It's not that there'll be no shipment of stuff, but it's going to be, let's say, most of it. Stuff is not going to be shipped across oceans at the rate that it currently is, and stuff won't even be shipped from New York at the rate that it currently is. And that whole level of movement of commodities, movement of materials, is, is going to start declining. And, and, and this New York Times article, page one of the of Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, said that's already begun. Global corporations are already realizing they can't keep doing that. They have to start regionalizing. We're talking about localizing. That eliminates the global corporation, of course. So at a certain point, there's resistance to it. But there's a lot, you know, your garden here is a great uh, thing. Bing Gong has this great experiment going up in Point Reyes where they're all trying to, this is happening everywhere. There's, a, there's millions and millions and millions of people right now involved in this process. And this is a very, very, very uh, uh, positive, wonderful development is how many people are focused on localizing food. Food in particular is number one. Localizing energy, localizing economic activity as much as possible. Community, community standards for transit and for um, events and so on. This is very, very important. We're all of us living above that level, even those who are very, very conscientious, I think. Uh, right now, we're all, I won't say all, probably most all, everyone in the room is I certainly am living uh, well above the permissible uh, level, and uh, all of that has to change. Now, how that happens in terms of changing the megasystems—that's where that's where it gets nasty, and I, I just don't know how, how. But I think we we have to we have to move where we can move. You, can, you have to do what you can do. You do what you can do. You get your community to do what it can do, and you talk about everything else that needs to be done. <laughs> try to create some, uh, try to create some kind of a, um, what do you call it, critical mass. H how to see a successful pathway forward. It's funny, we can envision what it ought to be. It's just really hard to know how to disentangle the, 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 all the lines of connection that have to be disentangled. So, That's an overlong answer to a question. No, no, I'm but sorry. it's very helpful. And I'd like to go into, um, your history of how you got engaged in this uh, personally and your activism on it. I mean, what I'm aware of is that you worked with Dub Tompkins, who was the founder of Esprit and North Face, the clothing companies, uh, and uh, who created the foundation for deep ecology. Uh, and um, as I understand it, just to use my shorthand, uh, Doug was very involved through the foundation with you in creating the International Forum on Globalization, which in turn played a really critical role in uh, the thinking and so forth that led to Seattle and the whole explosion of consciousness about trade as an issue that came out of Seattle. I have a friend who is a very thoughtful uh, foundation 
a director in New York who worked for 10 years on globalization issues. And he watched your work from afar, and he said to me, uh, after Seattle took place, he said, you know, there were a whole bunch of us who were working the inside track on this and thought we knew how to do this. And it was, he said, we thought Jerry and what he was doing was just not going to go anywhere. He said, Jerry turned out to be right, and his engagement was the, the transformative force, to the extent that any foundation was a transformative force, in uh, this remaking of uh, public discourse and awareness about globalization as an issue. So that's my gloss. Uh, you can correct it, but what I wanted to ask you to do is tell us the story of how you got involved with this. Uh, what were the institutions, Foundation for Deep Ecology, International Forum on Globalization, and uh, and what did you do collectively? What did you learn in the process? Uh, wh mm -hmm. What is the social history of this movement? Well, it depends how far back you want to go because it starts further back than Okay, where, where would you start? <clears throat> I would start for when I was in the advertising business, yeah. to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, I want to get the name of that uh, foundation by, uh, guy, by the way, because we need to raise some money right now. <laughs> if, he th if he thinks, that, if he thinks that's uh, good, we'll go after him. Yeah. Um, well, I'll try to be I'll try to be as brief as possible, but this is uh, this is my autobiography here. Right. Um, but um, when I was in the commercial advertising business, we were approached with um, in San Francisco. We were approached by um, David Brower of the Sierra Club, who uh, was desperate, wanting to keep dams out of Grand Canyon. They were about to put, about to put dams out of Grand Canyon, and I would say until that moment, um, I was not. Um, that involved in the environmental uh, movement. This is the, the mid-1960s, although I was involved, sort of involved light. Well, I could even go back to the committee, if you remember the satirical group, the committee. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my first awareness of political stuff, was working with them. But in any case, Brower came along and said he wanted to stop the dams from going in the Grand Canyon. We did a series of ads for Brower including one very famous one, uh, should we... Um, should we uh, um, Destroy the Sistine Chapel. chapel to put, right. you know, says, should, we, should, we, should we flood the Sistine Chapel so tourists can get nearer the ceiling? And um, because one of the rationales for the, for the Grand Canyon dams was if you flood them, then the tourists could be near the walls and look at the walls more closely. So that was a very successful series of, of ads, and it built the... Sierra Club from 30,000 members to 250,000 members in one year, and it stopped and it stopped the dams. It, 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 the, the, the administration, uh, Stuart Udall, who was the Secretary of the Interior, completely re reversed course. He had been in favor of the dams, and he reversed reversed course. And the, the dams got the ads got all the credit, and so we were very very excited about that. And from then on, I I was an environmentalist, I would say, and. Uh, and, um, and I also knew that advertising was the wrong side of the road to be on, at least commercial advertising. So I then formed a nonprofit advertising company called Public Media Center and did a lot of advertising with Public Media Center uh, of this kind. And through that learned, you know, that's how I, that was my education. But I also learned tools that you can use to, to, to I learned two things. I learned the kind of images the system uses and how, and how it works. You know, commercial advertising was very, very, very valuable 
to have been a part of because I really began to understand how the system operates and how you put images into people's heads and how they stay there and how people can't, and how that creates the culture and creates ideas and values and so on. We'll be right back after a short break. You've talked about television as a form of sleep learning. That's right. Well, it's all advertising is that, mm-hmm. and television is also that, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it goes in to unconscious parts of the brain. It just stays there. You can never, you can never get rid of it. You know, if I say uh, Tony the Tiger, I don't watch enough television to remember to know the current icons, but Tony the Tiger, you know, you all can picture Tony the Tiger, but I'm sure you never, never knew that you were carrying around that image. Uh, in, in your brain, and, and that's the way it all works. There's, it's a, a tremendously powerful system for um, implantation, brainwashing, and turning cultures into what the commercial side wants it to be. So I le- that was my education. And I also learned how to do it in the opposite direction. So we would start, we, we never had big budgets in the opposite direction, so we had to be very, very, very efficient how we did it. But um, we were able to have those tools and, and fought a lot of campaigns um, successfully. And I, and I would say it helped me learn how to boil things down to um, ideas that really can, can break through the unconsciousness a little bit. And so um, that was a great education. So then what happened was uh, Doug Tompkins and I had been uh, friends for many years since before he was rich, long before he had a, a company called Esprit, which he later opened. And he, he was just a ski bum in North Beach uh, and had a little ski shop. And so we used to hang around together, our kids played together and so on. And then he, and then he got to be the owner of this, it's a long story, but he got to be the owner of this giant company. He made $500 million. And, but all the time he was always telling me he envied me doing do-gooder work. And so, um, and so at a, at a point where he decided he was rich enough and didn't want to do that anymore, he decided he wanted to take most of his money and put it in a foundation. So he wound up taking about 90% of his capital and putting it into a grant-making foundation. And he asked me to be part of that. And he said he wanted to do, he wanted to be really, really, really core radical. He wanted to say the things that really needed to be said. And, we, and the areas of, that we functioned in were, um, 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 Deep ecology, that's to say, um, saving forests, that we were into saving natural lands that were unimpeded at all, uh, virgin, virgin lands. And the second area was uh, sustainable agriculture. He wanted to do anti-industrial agriculture. And the third area was mega technology and globalization. By then, this was late 80s, he'd been in business, and he was, we were talking about how businesses were all operating in a different way now. There wasn't any th- such thing as an American company. or Everybody was global. The reach was global. The, 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 either the supplies were coming from China or India or someplace, or they were marketing in different ways. And they were all operating globally. And everybody's talking about these environmental battles as though they were local. And they're not local. And they weren't going to be successful if people behaved, addressed them as local. So I helped him start the foundation, and 
was the executive director for a little while, and then decided I didn't really want to be an executive director. I wanted to do the program work. So I then focused on the, the technology, which I was very interested in, and the globalization side of the foundation. And, um, and we decided to start convening meetings to talk about globalization, because nobody, the term globalization in the late 18, in 1980s and early 1990s when we were doing all this, it wasn't, even, it wasn't even a term that people were using yet. It was, it was inter, still international business and so on. But we said, we've got to get people to see globalization. We have to get people to understand the term. So we brought together a lot of activists from around the world, about 40 of the leading activists from around the world, who were working on similar issues against global corporations locally. That is to say, they were doing local activism against global corporations. We said, let's do global activism against global corporations because we're all fighting the same exact battle. The story is the same wherever you go. The corporations are the same wherever you go. It's Union Carbide there and there and there and there. And, and let's talk about Union Carbide. You know? so, and just some of the names. Uh, yeah. uh, Maud Barlow from Canada, Vandana Shiva from India, Martin Kaur from Malaysia, right. uh, Helena Norberg-Hodge. And, and really, the, the board of the International Forum on Globalization is kind of a who's who. Yeah, they came together. The we came together for, in 1990 yeah, for yeah, the first time. Yeah, right. Most of us didn't know each other. Right. We knew about each other, but we didn't know each other. Right. We came together. Right. We met at Doug's house. Right. Um, and um, uh, this was, uh, we had about 30 of us. We had a series of three meetings. Mm -hmm. We got very excited about each other and very excited about what everybody, everybody else was doing. Mm -hmm. And so we said, let's let's make an organization and try to um, put out that this is all happening globally, and that we and that we're going to try to organize around it. So we did a little manifesto at the time, and we and we started holding public events. We started holding teach-ins, and uh, it caught on very very fast. And in fact, the first the first. Big teaching we did. We did some local events here, and then the first big teaching was in 1994, I think, uh, in New York. And we 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 hired uh, for three days. We decided to because we wanted to launch this. We wanted to move it out into the world. So, uh, and we we decided to do it at Columbia University for three days, and. Um, about a week before the event, we realized we had sold out the event, and not only that, but there were so many people wanting to go that couldn't get tickets to it. We had a 600-seat auditorium at Columbia, and it was, it was jammed already, and, and, and the term globalization wasn't even, barely even known at that point. So we hired Riverside Church. We moved it to Riverside Church, which is, of course, the historic place where Martin Luther King and everybody spoke and we thought oh my god that's going to be fantastic and that thing filled up like that also so we had 2,500 people for three days non-stop of speeches and workshops and and uh, we had Ralph Nader in those days he was a good friend and we had um, you know we just had a who's who of people who were thinking about this and that really launch things. Then we had a great event in Berkeley, and we had another one in uh, Washington. We'd started doing them overseas in, um, in South America and Europe, and uh, uh, we later on did a big one in Africa. And all of these things sort of built um, a vibe, a, a, what do you call it, a buzz on, on the movement, and organizations started forming on their own. You know, we had nothing to do with them, 
They were form on their own. And meanwhile, there was activity completely separate from us that we can't take any credit at all for. In India, there were farmers protesting by the millions against uh, the rules of intellectual property that were being perpetrated on them by corporations where you know, corporations were patenting, were patenting um, uh, medicinal Seeds. plants yeah. That, yeah. Uh, that the people had developed and then the people couldn't use them anymore, couldn't buy them. It was it's a, a vast, and, and farmers in Japan were protesting against the intrusions on their rice growing. Farmers in Korea were protesting. Uh, industrial workers in Europe were protesting. And they were all protesting the same things, but they didn't know each other. And then, this went on for a few years like that. And then Bill Clinton announced, announced that there were, the next big WTO ministerial meeting was going to be in Seattle. And we all, we all looked at each other and said, that's, that's a mistake. <laughs> he shouldn't do that in Seattle. And we knew right then that, that this was going to be a great thing. So about um, a year and a half ahead, as soon as the announcement started, we started organizing on it and had a whole lot of meetings. A lot of organizations were involved. A big coalition developed immediately that was going to turn Seattle into a giant thing. And groups were coming from all over the world. And, and we just knew, we knew long ahead that that was going to be what it was. And, um, um, and, and in the weeks before Seattle, something different started to happen, which was we, I started to get phone calls from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, you know, ABC News, and so on, saying, say, we hear there's going to be a really big protest in Seattle. We hear 50,000 people are coming to Seattle. Uh, to protest the WTO. What's the WTO? And why, are, why is everybody mad at it? And so it gave us our first chance to start telling, these story, telling the story and to move it, move it through the mainstream media because up until then, it's still, been, it's still been not recognized. In fact, you had people like Milton, not Milton, uh, you know, Friedman from the New York Times. Um, huh? Thomas Friedman. And even Krugman, who's now a good guy, both of them at that time, were talking about the stupid uh, protectionists like the anti-globalization movement. Now, Friedman's, Krugman's gone over. He's on our side now. But Friedman still talks like that a little bit, a little less aggressively now because the downside of globalization has shown up everywhere now and they're all, they're all saying about how it's not really working and so on. But um, they, they started to write columns about it and, and we had a big debate with... Uh, that was on national television uh, with uh, Rabandana Shiva and John Kavana and Ralph Nader on our side and maybe Maud Barlow also, I think, and then a couple of the, the other people, you know, people from the Clinton administration and people from the WTO and so on were on the other side. And we really creamed them in that debate. And that was played over and over and over and over again on um, C-SPAN, and that really meant a lot. And we did, at, in Seattle a big giant teach-in at, uh, at the Opera House in Seattle and had, uh, again, about 2,500 people, 3,000 people for three days solid, sold out. And uh, that was before the event. And all those people, they got their language from these teach-ins. They, they, they got their analysis from it. We handed out a, a report to everybody who came that articulated the real reasons. And then we'd see these things up on posters. People were walking around with our words on their posters. And it was very, very satisfying. Then seven anarchists showed up and threw a few bricks uh, into a few windows. 
I say seven because I think I knew them all, but there weren't anarchists until that event. They just put on these masks and started running around. I knew one of them was a very good friend of mine. I was just telling her, don't do that. Don't do that. You're going to steal the show and it's going to change substantive to police action and it's not going to be productive. It's going to be bad. It's going to turn the thing back. And it did. So they, that was a very, very counterproductive um, outcry and caused great consternation on our part. And even now when the, when the when there are reports about Seattle in the mainstream press, they're all about um, the riots in Seattle. There were no riots in Seattle. There were, there were police riots a little bit, but there were a, a very small number of these activists doing that, and people were trying to stop them. And it's just been made into this media event of, of a sort that only happened at the very end of the process and yet has, been, has become, in fact, the new, there's a new movie out now called Battle of Seattle. It's about to open up, which has it all wrong. And, uh, you know, it's all about, it, it too is all about the street action and has some things right, but they so didn't. So where, do where do you see the globalization struggle today? Well, right now we concentrate mainly in a couple of areas. We concentrate on this triple crisis. We're publishing a lot of documents about it. We're, we're doing, uh, you know, we had this big event last year. Uh, we're, we're publishing um, things called uh, papers on false solutions. We're trying to get people to realize that that every, everything is running in the everything's running in the in the um, wrong direction. All the all you know, and we're not seeing anything good coming out of our dear Barack Obama. We're not we we don't see anything coming out of McCain. We don't see anything really coming out of um, the political process yet. What'll happen after somebody gets elected? We, it's hard to tell, but right now they're all talking about the wrong things, and it's very, very, very frustrating. They're talking about they're talking about maintaining alternative energy at the current level. They're talking about clean coal, that, which is ridiculous. There is no such thing, and it it's a fantasy. They're talking about clean nuclear. They're talking about biofuels, even though biofuels actually cost more energy than they save. Um, they're talking about um, you know, developing uh, other kinds of alternative fuels and te technology will save us. That's the big rap. We say it's, we got to talk about power down. We got to talk about half the amount of energy and material use as currently. And that's how we have to talk about. It. So it's an intellectual process on the one hand. We're also very, very involved in the uh, indigen indi indigenous work this year and for the last few years, because in a world of scarce resources, more than 50% of the remaining resources of the world are on indigenous land. And that's, that's an, a great testament to indigenous people because it means that they have, that it's a great tragedy because the very concepts and lifestyles and uh, conceptual frameworks and uh, practices and, that have kept those lands in a stable form uh, has now turned out to, to have them sitting on the biggest reservoir of unused resources of all kinds in the world and made them even more of a target than they've been up until now. We worked very hard, however, to pass the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which is a great, super radical, wonderful, amazing document. Is that passed? It was passed after mm -hmm. 22 years. When did that it pass? It only got four negative votes. <laughs> when did that pass? That passed a year ago. A year ago. 
got four negative votes. You want to guess who they were from? Mm -hmm. Tell us. <laughs> the United States, Canada, which was a big surprise, mm -hmm. New Zealand, which was a big surprise, and Australia. Mm. They, have, they have a lot in common. They're all Anglo-Saxon, colonial-oriented countries with big indigenous populations. And they're all trying to protect their mineral development um, uh, opportunities. They don't want the indigenous people to have too many rights. So this is a great document, and it gives a tool that they can use uh, in trying to protect their lands. And now what we're doing, working very hard on, is trying to uh, actualize the document, to put teeth in it so that, because it's, a, it's a, an advisory document. It's sort of like the UN Declaration on Human Rights, which is also an advisory document, but has become very important. It's become a standard, and other countries follow it, and you can do sanctions about it, and so on. And we want, we're trying to get the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights to be there. We're also doing a series of events around the UN climate meetings in Copenhagen. We're, do, we're starting this fall with a series of events on what kind of architecture we would like the global, the climate architecture ought to be. And in order to achieve you know, something like the 350 milligrams or you know, the 350 level of um, emissions that will maybe help save the planet and what kinds of standards need to be applied in order to achieve that. And we have a, we're doing our first event in New York in November and then again in, uh, we're doing one in Anchorage and then we're going to Europe and we're doing a series but, of but events. But do you, I mean, those are all virtuous activities, but, but do you see the kind of opportunity that you saw in Seattle <coughs> on the horizon where there's a, a moment that can be transformative? Well, Copenhagen ahead? is the moment, <coughs> but mm -hmm. Copenhagen is gonna be very difficult what was great about Seattle is that nobody knew uh, what was gonna happen in Seattle. Whereas Copenhagen, everybody in the world is showing up in Copenhagen and they've all got their own agendas. It's gonna be hard to manage a, a revolution in Copenhagen and um, very, very, very difficult to pull off. So I guess the answer is no. I don't see a single moment or a single concept that will do it. Bill McKibben, of course, is, is, has gone around talking a lot about this 350, and he's started a new organization called 350.org, which is a very, very good uh, organization of very young activists who are extremely impressive and very, very smart, and we're working with them closely, trying to give them a, an international set of connections that they can use. So but uh, I don't have a, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, just trying to work in a, a bunch of these different areas simultaneously, hoping to influence the process right, right. now. We have uh, 10 minutes remaining, Jerry, and what I'd like to um, turn to now uh, is to turn back to the question of media for uh, a closing segment. You, uh, in a YouTube of, uh, I saw on you, you talked about how there are seven corporations that control 70% of the media in the world. Um, and how incredibly dangerous that was and how unusually centralized that was even for a corporate sector. In other words, that it was an unusually centralized corporate sector and that, uh, that this was the centralization of the sector that is most directly related to consciousness. Uh, that it wasn't about things, it was about consciousness. Mm -hmm. Clearly, 
I think we'd agree that if we are going to get the transformation we need, uh, that is a very fundamental stumbling block. Now, we're also equally aware that there's been this tremendous transformation of communication with the internet and with the development of everybody's a publisher, you know, people can put video, audio, print, whatever up. What is your analysis of the degree to which the internet revolution transforms the stranglehold that those seven corporations had on global media? And how important do you see that in terms of moving toward a just and sustainable world? Well, I, I, um, I think that the internet revolution, I think particularly YouTubes, I think they're terrific. But the question you're asking is, will they really transform uh, the processes that are, that are at large? And, and um, I'm afraid I'm skeptical about that because, and I've written about this a little bit in a couple of places, but um, I, to the, I think, you know, I run a, an organization and we use internet all day long and uh, use, use the, the opportunities from the internet as much as we possibly can. But um, I, at least, am aware of the fact that however well we're able to use the Internet to inform our gang and to put out our own images and to you know, try to generate uh, and, you know, enthusiasm for what we're trying to do and to present opposite sides of the story and so on, however well we do it, the other side does it too. And uh, they have uh, more money and more scale. They're operating, you know, they push a button and move $10 billion from a bank in uh, New York to a bank in uh, Indonesia, and then a forest disappears. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like they, they have real connection to real power. And um, so we're sending information, and they're using it for power. And it's a, it's, a, it's a difference in scale, I think. This is not to say that we don't use it or that we shouldn't use it. And that, I mean, I tend to drop my Luddite tendencies uh, when I'm talking about this because um, we have to use it right now in this emergency situation. But I also think we have to appreciate that however much we use it, they use it at least that much, maybe more. It's made possible a mode of global, or I mean, the global organizing that happens among corporations right now and within corporations right now and within military uh, right now, it was not possible before computers, you know, everything was slower and the scale was slower. So speaking from a, um, speaking from a technological critic's point of view, I don't think there's a net gain in, you know, when, when the cube computer got invented and the internet came along, everybody said, oh, this is great. And Stuart Brand and everybody was hawking it like mad and, and what's his name from Wired Magazine, hawking like man, this is gonna save the world, this is the revolution, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. If it's good for us, it's good for them. And it gives us a voice. Maybe we didn't have it as, as much before. But it gives them... Now, in television, it, we don't have a voice, really. You're right, 7% of global corporations control 70% of global media. All media. Television, radio, film, books, everything. And that's an astounding domination um, and we don't have a way of offsetting that and our use of the internet is one way we can 
we can fire back. And sometimes we do something that really catches on and goes through that viral system and, and you, really see, you really see something move. But, um, you know, we started out talking about localization and uh, the necessity of being here now and, and keeping your activity within a local domain. I think it applies to media too. We can't afford to do that. But I'd rather be in the end, I think we have, a, we have a better chance for controlling our existence and controlling our knowledge and our experience if we were not uh, also engaged in global, um, global information movement. I mean, we have to be engaged, but so it's a paradox. But uh, I think that, I, 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 think it's a, I think it's a net loss uh, in the end. These instruments are producing a net loss for people interested in sustainability. And, and, um, and even the way they move information like um, how to respond to this crisis, how to respond to globalization, green consumerism. Have you ever seen anything like this green consumerism thing that's going on? I mean, you can't put on radio or television without hearing from PG&E or from a bank or from an oil company how all you have to do is do their thing and, and you're going to save the planet. And they, the Sierra Club has an alliance with Clorox. I'm horrified that. at that. Yeah. I know. I heard Carl Pope on, with the, Clorox. Carl Pope on the radio yeah. the other day saying yeah. that. And uh, it's, it's a horrible. We have a, a YouTube up called Green Sumption. You should check it out. Green Sumption where we talk about this very problem of green consumerism. So... Um, I, I think the, the media, and I'm, um, my next book is going to be on this subject, um, is that, uh, I'm going to go back to the media and, try, and write about this very point, is, the, is now in some ways the unnoticed, people don't talk about it anymore. Even just advertising is such a dominant factor in the world now, and people don't talk about it much. People are just so glad to get their YouTube up and uh, to do their local radio program, and thank God for those things. Um, but they think that that's really controlling it. And, and it's, again, it's, it's you know, we, we do it. We have to do it, and we must keep doing it. But uh, we have to be cognizant of the larger problem at the same time. Opening it up, Ned. Um, I enjoyed a lot of what you had to say. I've just come from a, some time in a sort of wealthy part of New England. And I, I kept feeling like the people who live on resources that they didn't create, that they live on the, the, the backs of others, really, through all the financial worlds of markets and so on. And I was just wondering, in your mm. domain, how do you see creating a, a storyline that addresses that, that privilege? Mm. Well, first of all, I know plenty of very wealthy people who who have understood that problem and who are, I mean, Doug Tompkins is an example of that, but there are many other people in the foundation world that Michael also knows that, that have seen the handwriting on the wall and are very eager to try to reverse course and are willing to do uh, some sacrifice. I think it's a, you know, it's a slowly evolving um, awareness process. You know, if you realize that after a while, that, well, it's going to be hard to maintain your current level of wealth and a current level of uh, privilege, let's say. Um, and then you realize that the situation is as grave as it is and that you're probably not going to be able to maintain it anyway. And then you realize that resources are needed for, for transitions um, and that the world is, you know, the, the, the 
decline of of the situation of the world is going to affect you uh, in any case, and that you probably have to do something about it. I, I, I think people, I'm not ready to say that people can't make the kind of change that you think they're resisting. I, I think they are resisting it, and a large number of people will be, and the whole, and the institutional base is, is of course, strongly uh, resistant. But, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by my mother in the 1940s. Um, we weren't wealthy, but we had a comfortable middle-class house in, in Yonkers, New York, in, uh, with a big backyard and so on. And uh, in the 1940s, you know, there was a shortage of food. There was rationing, there was a lot of other things. And she and, her, she and a lot of the neighbors went in the backyard, and she had never farmed for a day in her life, and started growing food. And, you know, in a matter of a year, we had, we had so much food in, in that backyard. It was just... Uh, Amazing, the whole uh, of, you know, um, what they call them, Liberty Farms? Uh, Victory Gardens. Victory Gardens. That whole Victory Garden um, movement in those days uh, really took off. And by the way, we're going to have a, a session on Victory Gardens with mainstream moms in this series here. And they got so much satisfaction yeah. out of it. They yeah. loved it. Yeah. They loved it. It made people feel good. People loved that. Yeah. In fact, there's an idea I'm thinking of trying to cook up into a sign of a, some kind of a campaign, yeah. which is the conversion of the suburbs into Victory Garden, into farms. Into farms, yeah. In other words, uh, we're running out of land to make mm -hmm. farms, and it's all owned by somebody. Yeah. But all those backyards and you know, in the suburbs, you know, yeah. all those people with big backyards, yeah. we yeah. could we could turn that all into food, yeah. and okay. uh, that would solve the food cost crisis. That would solve yeah. the energy problem to a large degree. It could yeah. be a tremendous. Uh, yeah. As I've been trying to think of how to how to launch a campaign like that that turns whole suburbs into uh, into farms. I think it could be very powerful, and people get so much out of it. You see, all the people you're talking about who don't want to make these transitions, they think of it as negative, but actually it's positive. It's, it, it feels good to do most, many of these things and to get off the certain wheel that they're on, as Annie Leonard talks about, and switch to, uh, you know, and switch to something more uh, stable and personal and uh, fulfilling, yeah. Jerry Mander, thank you for oh, being with us at the you. new school. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the New School and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.